This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Come on in, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Murder Most Foul, Murder Most Grizzly is uh, the theme of tonight's transmission, hour one of the program, and coming up in mere minutes, who killed Bob Crane? Bob Crane, of course, the, uh, the actor who played my boyhood hero, Colonel Hogan of Hogan's Heroes. Crane was uh, bludgeoned to death in his suite in Scottsdale, Arizona, way back in 1978, almost 40 years ago. And the case remains unsolved. A Fox TV news reporter, John Hook, is standing by with some new information on that cold case and his new book, Who Killed Bob Crane? That's uh, coming up in your moments, as I say. First, uh, oh, hour two of the program. Let's uh, do a quick look ahead. Hour two, the true story of serial killer Russell Williams. This was the elite pilot of Canada's Air Force One, the most, uh, well, he flew VIP for a number of people, including Prince Philip, the Queen of England, the Governor General, the Prime Minister, uh, and um, we'll talk about his secret life, serial killer Russell Williams, and of course, the innocent uh, victims that he murdered. Alan R. Warren uh, will join us. He is the author of Above Suspicion. And uh, there's a quick look at that book for those of you joining us on YouTube. And that is coming up in hour two. First, let's introduce the boys in the band on the other side of the glass. As always, on the Flying V Gibson guitar, our fine rockabilly friend, technical producer, Ian Robertson. Uh, Here in studio with me on the Rickenbacker bass guitar and occasionally the theremin, Albert Vinzel. Say hello, Albert. And uh, then we also have on the Hammond B3, intern Ryan White. Gentlemen, uh, I ask all of you uh, assembled here in studio and also those of you listening at home, uh, please direct your attention to uh, the cigar box here on my left. 
the left-hand side of the desk here in studio at, I'm going to give you the coordinates, 70 Jefferson Avenue, 70 Jefferson Avenue in the Liberty Village neighborhood of Toronto, Canada. So I ask you, utilize your remote viewing skills, follow the protocols, and allow the shape, the size, the texture, the color of the object in this box to form in your mind. Uh, and for those of you at home participating in our remote viewing experiment, you must use the hashtag TCSRemote. Uh, if you just email it to me or if you're in the live chat on YouTube and you guess, I'm not going to have time to check all these different places. So I'm asking you, please, if you want to take part in our remote viewing experiment that we do every week, use the hashtag TCSRemote. And for one skilled listener out there who comes closest to remote viewing the contents of the uh, cigar box, I will send you some Conspiracy Show merchandise from the Conspiracy Show online store. And if you're a fan of the Conspiracy Show, why not show it off and help support the program by purchasing some Conspiracy Show merchandise. Just uh, visit the online store at theconspiracyshow.com. Uh, very quickly, ahead of John Hook, author of Who Killed Bob Crane, let's go around the horn very quickly. Ian in the other uh, studio, please, what's in the box? Uh, tickets to see the zombies. <laughs> uh, all right. And uh, Albert, what's in the box? It's, I, I'm guessing, like red or purple, like maybe a, a string, handkerchief, scarf, or a tie. Red or purple, handkerchief, or tie. And yeah. finally, over to you, Ryan White. I was thinking maybe some chocolate or something brown. You're seeing something brown, something chocolate. All right, we will do the reveal at the bottom of the hour once again. For those of you playing along at home, use the hashtag TCS, as in The Conspiracy Show, TCS Remote. Uh, the 1978 murder of actor and American icon Bob Crane uh, remains one of the most high-profile, unsolved celebrity murders of all time. And now, shocking results from new DNA tests in this cold case cast doubt on who killed Bob Crane. Did the police spend decades chasing an innocent man? John Hook is a veteran news reporter, television anchor for over 30 years in Arizona. John was, uh, has won more than a dozen Emmys for his reporting. He was named Associate Press Anchor of the Year five times. He's covered every major story from the O.J. Simpson murder case to the impeachment of President Bill Clinton and the 1989 earthquake in San Francisco, as well as every presidential election since 1996. And he anchors Fox 10 News at 5 and 9 and hosts the Emmy Award-winning Fox 10 Newsmaker Sunday. He's a graduate of Arizona State University. He was a 2002 inductee into the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism Hall of Fame. And his book is his first book, Who Killed Bob Crane? The Final Close-Up. John Hook, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Richard, great. It is great to speak with you again. I so enjoy your show. And uh, I was giving, when you were introducing Arizona State University, I put up my uh, pitchfork for you, <laughs> for all those folks who go to ASU and, and are graduates. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. And we had a, um, we had a, a great conversation on Coast to Coast uh, a few weeks back. We did. So we're going to have to do more of a truncated version here. But first of all, uh, um, you know, I, we, we've talked about this before, but it's fascinating uh, of all the, the news stories that you have covered, uh, you know, your first book to be about Bob Crane. I mean, I know you grew up watching him. I was a, I was a, I was a huge fan of Hogan's Heroes. Mm -hmm. But, but why, why Bob Crane's case? What captivated you so? I think, Richard, it's because I grew up with him, as you mentioned, but he's been part of my life for my entire life. Uh, the show went on the air in 1965. It ran through 1971. 
I was a little young to get it then, but as it went into heavy rerun, which it did right. in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and beyond, he's with us today. And then when I come down to Arizona State University to go to school, I come down here in August of 1978, a month after the murder happened in Scottsdale. So again, I'm besieged by Bob Crane news. This was the biggest story that had ever happened in the Phoenix area. Huge story. Right. And, and uh, for people who don't fully grasp who Bob Crane was, I mean, there was a life uh, before Colonel Hogan. Uh, he was right. a celebrated, uh, very talented broadcaster in, in Los Angeles. That's right. He worked at KNX in L.A., and before that he had been on the East Coast bumping around in smaller markets, Bristol, Connecticut, uh, Hornell, New York, Bridgeport, Connecticut. He was so good, Richard, that CBS in New York took notice of him, and they realized he was siphoning off some of their listeners. So they actually did kind of a reconnaissance mission, and they shipped him off to L.A. to get him out of the East Coast uh, area of dominant influence, ADI. And they got rid of him. They got him out of New York, and they said, let's steal this guy and, and put him on KNX in L.A., which is a CBS flagship out there. And he had a madcap morning show, and he was so good. He became eventually dubbed king of the L.A. airwaves. And his show, everyone was listening to it, from Hollywood producers to actors to anybody in the, in the entertainment industry, listening to him in the morning do this madcap morning show, and producers started to take notice of this guy and his comedic genius, and that's how he ended up on television. That's how he eventually ended up with the role of Colonel Robert Hogan on Hogan's Heroes. And um, after Hogan's Heroes um, wrapped up in the early 70s, Bing Crosby Productions, I was always fascinated that uh, it was produced by, by Bing Crosby. Right. Uh, but uh, Bob, unfortunately, as talented as he was, his career kind of went south. I mean, there was a short-lived series, I remember it in the mid-'70s, playing opposite Hope Lang. I think it was called The Bob Crane Show or something That's like right. that. Yeah. Uh, but after that, uh, not much work aside from dinner theater. That's right. He got shots on Love Boat. He, he got MacGyver. He got a few shows. But he was kind of a bit, bit part. I mean, you could not escape. I mean, this guy at the Zenith was attracting that show 30 million people a week. So he became kind of typecast. I mean, he was Colonel Hogan. That's how everyone knew him. Any bar that he would walk into, they'd go, Hogan, Hogan. They'd yell at him. They knew him from that, and he was in such heavy uh, rerun that people just instantly knew the guy. He was... Think of it in, in today's terms. This would be Tim Allen or Ashton Kutcher or Ray Romano or Charlie Sheen. Right. That right. kind of guy. So just huge presence and probably bigger in some respects because so many eyeballs were on the show. Was he as affable uh, on, uh, on the set? I mean, what I know he, um, he and... Um uh, Richard Dawson. Richard Dawson had a, yeah. a kind of a sour relationship based on maybe professional jealousy on Dawson's part. Right, exactly. But but did he get along with you know Robert Clary and Ivan Dixon, who went on to direct some television as well? Did what did they had? Did they have nice things to say about him? Yes, um, all of those folks turned out for his funeral in 1978. Richard Dawson did not, and we can get into the reasons why. Um, Dawson wanted to be the star of that show. Newkirk, right. right. Newkirk. Great Peter character. Newkirk. But the problem was having a Brit as the head of the Allied guys working 
under the noses of the Germans in Stalag 13. It didn't make sense. And I think Dawson eventually realized it, too. But Dawson was much more accomplished, I think. He felt he was much more polished as a TV performer. So he bristled a little bit that this neophyte in television kind of one-upped him. Um, Crane had been on... He had been on the Dick Van Dyke show. He did a recurring role there. He was on the Donna Reed show and was a very popular sideman on that show for a time. Um, but when he got into, into Hogan's Heroes, that was the launching point for him. And he became that character, and it, was, it fit him. It was pretty much the guy you heard on the radio. It was very much Bob Crane in many respects, so it was an easy part for him to play. Right. Wisecracking, handsome, charming, quick-witted, all of that. And a devoted family man, which has been really kind of uh, uh, overshadowed. Uh, most people are familiar with uh, Greg Kinnear, a great actor, portraying right. Bob Crane in, uh, was it Autofocus? Autofocus, yes, and it, 2002. It, it, it sort of uh, delved into the darker side. Uh, Bob Crane was, by all accounts, a sex addict. And, uh, uh, well, we're coming up on a break. When we come back, we'll talk about how he hooked up with, um, I guess, a sales rep at Sony, and um, uh, uh, Bob Crane being a bit of a techie, how that uh, sort of that relationship aided and abetted in his, uh, uh, I guess, his sexual addiction and so forth. That's and, a great way to put it. And yes. ultimately, uh, perhaps, uh, led to his ultimate demise. John Hook is with us, the author of Who Killed Bob Crane? The Final Close-Up. And uh, we will continue this conversation on the other side. The Conspiracy Show, stay with us. My name is Richard Serrett. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now. 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Fox News reporter, anchor John Hook is with us. Who killed Bob Crane? The final close-up. And just uh, sort of by way of um, warning, on the the YouTube stream, uh, we may show some uh, photographs from the book that are somewhat grisly. Uh, so just be forewarned and forearmed, and uh, these are uh, these are crime scene photos uh, from Bob Crane's murder back in 1978. Now um, we were talking about uh, uh, Bob Crane's sexual addiction, and uh, I guess while he was in L.A. Uh, doing the uh, the radio, he hooked up with this uh, Sony. Was he a sales rep, John Carpenter? Yeah, he was one of the first representatives for Sony Electronics in the country. They were just getting started with video, and it was actually on the set of Hogan's Heroes that Richard Dawson introduced John Carpenter to Bob Crane. This was a relationship that would set them on a course of meeting women, a fascination with electronics, a fascination with photography, and that would eventually end in murder. The question is, was John Carpenter the killer? That's the central question in this case. And that's what we delved back into, trying to use modern DNA science to prove once and for all who that blood in John Carpenter's car belongs to. There was blood found 
in Carpenter's car after Bob Crane's murder in June of 1978. Yes, uh, and before I, I'll get you to give us the, sort of the thumbnail sketch of um, that date in June when Crane's body was discovered, uh, but um, I just want to clarify. Now, the, the videotape equipment was um, was used to to record. These, these were sort of early sex tapes that Bob Crane was making, and I think it's important to point out that the uh, the women that are in these uh, involved in these uh, videos were willing accomplices. So they, were, they were willing participants, is what I mean to say. Is that we know that for a fact, correct? Well, everything that I've seen, yes. And and the reason I'm so certain of this, Richard, is that um, when we look at pictures of Bob Crane's apartment, when you come upon the picture and you'll show it on the live stream of the of the video equipment set up in Bob Crane's apartment in Scottsdale, and this was typical how he would do this when he was out on the road performing in dinner theater. This is after Hogan's Heroes was off the air. Um, he would set, there it is, he would set up this equipment, and it looks like, look at the camera, it looks like it fell off a Soyuz space capsule. Right. It's so big and bulky, it's all pointed at the couch in the living room where the women would have sex with Bob Crane, and sometimes John Carpenter as well. They couldn't miss it. There is no way you could not know that you were being recorded because the picture would be up on the TV screen and the videos that I've seen and I've seen several the women are mugging for the camera they know fully know that they are on videotape right and they're enjoying it I mean they're being seduced by Colonel Hogan when he would go into a bar the place would go crazy and he would have his pick of the litter it sounds very crass but that's kind of how it went and Bob Crane had no trouble meeting and betting many, many women. So Carpenter became a hanger-on. Uh, he provided the, the technical uh, equipment, the expertise, and um, at, uh, I guess at a certain point became kind of a nuisance for Bob Crane. And Crane communicated this idea, I guess, to, was it Bob Crane Jr.? It was, son? yeah. He told Bob Crane Jr. in the days before the Scottsdale trip, and I'll quote here, um, he said, Carpenter is becoming a pain in the ass. I need to make some changes. He was feeling that Carpenter was becoming kind of a, an albatross, hanging around all the time. And on the trip to Scottsdale, it's very important to note, and this had also happened in Dallas, the trip before Scottsdale, he would typically do this dinner theater run of beginner's luck for a month at a time. The theater would put him up in, a, in an apartment, a two-bedroom apartment. In the years before, Carpenter would meet Crane out on the road, ostensibly to do video work for Sony. Uh, by that time, it was Akai. He had left Sony and was working for Akai Video. Um, he would say that he was doing business on the road, but it was all about picking up women. He might make one stop at a video shop, and that was it. In the four days, he would be with Crane, typically a three- or four-day stay. All of it was built around going out and picking up women at night after Crane got off the uh, set of the show beginner's luck on this particular trip to scottsdale carpenter was booked into a hotel down the street the sunburst hotel this is very significant in the eyes of investigators because they felt that at that point crane was emancipating he didn't want carpenter hanging around anymore he didn't want him in the apartment with him he wanted some separation from this guy and so there's evidence that he was starting to distance himself and sever the relationship and there's even an account of a very tense conversation between the two 
at an establishment in Phoenix two days before the murder that police believe was the breakup conversation where Crane, they believe, told Carpenter, look, we can't go on as we've been doing. I, we need to change this. This is it. This is the last trip. And that Carpenter took it very badly and that that led him to kill Bob Crane. All right. Take us back to uh, uh, that, that day in June of 1978 when a, um, a young actress uh, arrives at the, uh, at the hotel looking for Bob Crane. That would be Victoria Berry. She arrived at Crane's apartment at about 2.15 in the afternoon on June 29, 1978. They had an, an arrangement. They were going to meet to do an overdub of a scene from Beginner's Luck that John Carpenter, amazingly, shot three days earlier at the Windmill Dinner Theater. There was an audio problem, and she wanted to have this because she was trying to get TV work in Hollywood. She wanted to overdub that and redo the audio. Crane was going to help her redo the audio and overdub. She gets to the apartment, knocks on the door. Bob's car is there. The paper is still on the front porch, on the front doorstep. She's knocking on the door. Bob, Bob, knocking on the door. Nothing's happening. She gently turns the doorknob, and it's open. This is very unusual because Bob Crane always locked his doors. But she thought... Okay, he's here, he's in back, he's out by the pool. She walks into a pitch-dark apartment. All the drapes are pulled. It is completely dark in there. She makes her way through the apartment, heads out to the Arcadia door, which looks out on the pool, calling out, Bob, Bob, Bob. No answer. She thinks he's outside. She looks outside. Bob isn't out by the pool. She ducks back in the apartment, kind of walks back in, takes a right, which would take her to the master bedroom. She had been there before, by the way, because she had slept with Bob Crane twice during their run of beginner's luck, at least twice that we know of. She ducks in the bedroom, and she sees a form in bed with dark, she thinks, a woman with dark hair in bed. Dark streaks. Turns out to be these are the blood streaks on Bob Crane. She believes it's the long hair of a woman. She looks closer and she thinks, oh, my God, a woman has killed herself in Bob's bed. That was her first thought. She thought it was a woman. Then she starts thinking, maybe it's a man. Is it Bob? Is it John Carpenter? That's how close they were. She thought maybe John Carpenter was in that bed and, and was dead. Right. She didn't know what was going on. She runs out of the apartment. They call the police. Police and fire arrive and go into the apartment, and Bob Crane is dead. She doesn't know still that whether, who that is, and she's probably praying against all odds that it's not Bob Crane. And that's how it starts. That's how this odyssey of 38 years begins. The police arrive, uh, and while they're investigating the crime scene, the telephone rings, and it's John Carpenter calling Bob Crane's apartment. He, sp he speaks to the police. What, what, what goes on in that conversation? Well, he calls the apartment, and they have Victoria Berry pick up the phone. She is in there making a witness statement. She's in the apartment. It's about 105 degrees out by this point. So they ducked her into the apartment where it was a little cooler and had her write out a witness statement. This, again, gives rise to questions about the scene being contaminated, letting her go back in. Nonetheless, the phone rings. Lieutenant Ron Dean says, pick up the phone. She picks it up. She goes, hello? Hey, it's John Carpenter. Who's this? It's Victoria. Oh, hi, Victoria. Is Bob around? I'm back in L.A. 
Carpenter left that morning. The day that Crane's body was discovered, he left and went back to Los Angeles. He was taken by cab to Sky Harbor Airport to fly out. The plan was, though, Richard, for Crane to take Carpenter to the airport that morning. It was noted in Crane's day planner by his bedside, spattered with his blood. John leaves 10 a.m. That was the plan. The plan changed. Carpenter says, yeah, I went back to L.A. I'm here. Um, is, where's Bob? And she's a great actress. She says, he's not here right now. At that point, uh, Ron Dean takes the phone, grabs it out of her hand. Uh, this is Lieutenant Dean. We have a situation here at the apartment. Who's this? Oh, this is uh, John Carpenter. I'm back in L.A. I'm just checking on Bob. I wanted to let him know I'm back here. I'm fine. Everything's good. He keeps repeating that. It's interesting. I'm here in L.A. I'm not there. I'm here in L.A. That's exactly right. And police would later believe that he was already building an alibi and sniffing around for information on where the cops were on this case. That's pretty brazen to call the crime scene where you have, if, in fact, that's the case, where you've just killed somebody and, and, and talk to the police. Yes, and they believe that he was sniffing around, that he was eager to find out if Bob Crane's body had been discovered. He had also called the Windmill Dinner Theater that day, knowing full well, according to police, that Crane wouldn't be there. Crane was never there, rarely there in the afternoon. But Carpenter called the windmill twice, asking about Bob. Is he there? Is he going to be performing tonight? Uh, This is John Carpenter. I'm just calling to let him know I'm okay. Let him know that I got back to L.A. Everything's fine. Police believe he was building an alibi. He, and then when he calls the apartment, they believe he was returning to the scene of the crime telephonically. Now, because time is tight, um, now, did the, the police go to L.A. to interview him, or did they, they, bring did. Him, they bring him to Scottsdale? They first went to L.A. It took a couple of days because when they—Carpenter called the apartment a second time. Then they really got suspicious. He called back about 15 minutes later. They're like, who is this John Carpenter guy calling? They got very suspicious. And Ron Dean, for one, was not going to offer up anything because he thought, what, who is this guy? Why the keen interest in what we're doing here? Well, Carpenter says it's completely innocent. He was alarmed. The cops were there, and he was trying to figure out what was going on. That's his take. Cops went out after they located, after some suspicion, they located Carpenter's rental car a day later. They find blood in the rental car on the passenger side door. They test this blood, but that's not known when they first interview Carpenter, but blood is found in his car. They go out to L.A. on, um, I believe it's the next day or two days later, maybe in July 1st. Maybe in July 1st. They go out July 1st. They interview him at his apartment that he shared with a stripper who he had shacked up with, even though he was married. This is Carpenter. And they interview him, and they say, you know, there was blood found in your car, and he was taken aback. And they said, there's some blood in your car. Did Bob Crane ever bleed in your car? No. Did you ever bleed in your car? No. Was your car always locked? Yes. They decide enough's enough. They say, listen, uh, we're going to take you back to Scottsdale. We want to question you further. And Carpenter says, fine. So they meet the next day. This is July 2nd. They fly back to Scottsdale and interview Carpenter, which I have listened to that interrogation on audio tape. It's fascinating. They don't accuse him during that, but they are really working him. And he says, look, you know, Bob's my friend. 
I had no reason to kill him. Um, I'm sad he's dead. I don't understand what's going on. I didn't have anything to do with it, blah, blah, blah. But Carpenter remained very cool during that interview and even at the end offers to take a lie detector test or take sodium pentothal to help them. He also gave them a blood sample, went to the hospital. They said, we need to eliminate you as the source of that blood. Can we get blood from you? He said, sure. He was very cooperative. Now, it's important to note that in 1978, uh, there was no DNA testing, at least if there right. was, it was in the in ex- very experimental stages. It probably wouldn't have been even admissible at that point. So they do a, a simple blood test to test for the type, the blood type. That's right. And what do they find? It's type B, type B positive, found in only 9% of the population. Bob Crane's blood type is? Exactly. Type, type B. B positive. You can imagine at that point, Carpenter is vaulted up the list to the very top of suspects. Blood found in his car. He leaves the day that Crane is murdered. He's one of the last people to see him alive. You can imagine what police are thinking at that point. And the murder weapon. Where is it? Never found. For your viewers on YouTube, I don't know if you can show that picture of Bob Crane in bed. If you can pull that up, I'll describe what you're going to see. There it is. In the lower right-hand corner, there's a V-shaped blood stain on the foot of Bob Crane's bed for your listeners on radio. Right. This is on the foot of the bed on the right side, below Bob Crane's bed. There body. it is, there's yes. There's a V-shaped blood stain. This took investigators a long time to figure out what caused that. They didn't know if the murder weapon had been wiped down twice. They later came to say that V-shaped blood stain is from a camera tripod, bloodied with Bob Crane's blood after he was bludgeoned, and laid down on the bed while the killer went out to the front room, cut a piece of video cable, the power cord from the video camera, to tie around Bob Crane's neck in the throes of death. That's what they believe that V-shaped bloodstain was. The problem was, in Crane's apartment, it turned out later when they reopened the case in 1990, he had two tripods, twin tripods that were matching. One was in the apartment, but there was a second one missing. There it is. You see it for your YouTube folks. So, John Carpenter... The tripod was never found, and what you're uh, seeing there is a replica that was used to test. Oh, I see. Okay. Right. So, John Carpenter immediately is the number one suspect. But right. there were others, were there not? I mean, th- th- there were other people with motives, perhaps. the, uh, the um, Bob Crane was in the midst of a messy divorce. That's right. Uh, who else? Well, you know, there are myriad jealous husbands, jealous boyfriends, women who might have wanted their videotape back, photographs back. He took still pictures as well of, of the women he bedded. There are any number of people, Richard, who would have wanted to do Bob Crane harm. The problem was here that John Carpenter vaulted up the list with all of this evidence. The blood in his car really was the one where they said, well, what are the odds of blood in his car of the victim's blood type found one day after the killing? All right, when we come back, we'll talk about why John Carpenter walked and uh, this new DNA test that will shed new light on the uh, murder of Bob Crane nearly 40 years ago. Perhaps we're getting close to closure for Bob Crane Jr. and his siblings. We'll find out when John Hook... And I continue our conversation when The Conspiracy Show continues. Stay with us. Keeping an eye on the new world order.
This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To get the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. We'll get back to our conversation with John Hook in just a moment, the author of Who Killed Bob Crane? The Final Close-Up, New DNA Tests, uh, to shed some light on this 40-year-old cold case. Uh, let's uh, reveal what's in the box, our weekly remote viewing experiment. Now, let me see. Uh, Ian uh, is guessing uh, tickets to see the Zombies concert, <laughs> and, uh, which they're playing here on uh, April the 2nd. Uh, Albert was guessing something red or purple, a necktie, or what was the something? Uh, yeah, scarf or handkerchief. Uh, and uh, Ryan, again, you said... Some chocolate. Some chocolate. Brown. All right, very quickly, uh, let's... I asked people to use the TCS uh, or the, the hashtag TCS remote, but I'm getting a few people here on the uh, live chat anyway. A pencil case, that's American Zero, or shotgun shells. Uh, let's see. Uh, Daniel S. is guessing a banana. Uh, Tip and Turtle says it's a voodoo doll. You uh, betcha says a McDonald's shamrock shake. And uh, let's see. Uh, then on t- on the uh, the Twitter uh, on using the hashtag, I have Ross saying uh, something round and plastic type material, a music CD. Uh, April is guessing a pine shaped car freshener. Uh, let's see. I think that's about it. Well, unfortunately, n- uh, I don't know, John. Did you want to? Did you want to try and guess? Yeah, yeah, I've got a guess. Okay, I'm thinking it's cigars. <laughs> you would not be the first to guess that. It makes sense. But what we have is a yo-yo. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Love All right. We'll, uh, we'll resume that next week. One quick uh, programming note. Sunday, April the 2nd. Now, Ian mentioned, uh, you know, zombie tickets. I'm taking my little guys to see the zombies here in Toronto. They're performing. This is a, a landmark album, probably in the top three of, of uh, you know, in Sgt. Pepper would be number one. Maybe Pet Sounds number two. Number three would be Odyssey and Oracle by the Zombies. Four of the surviving five members will be playing that album here in Toronto. I'm taking my little guys. So sitting in this chair Sunday, April the 2nd, you've heard me speak of her for many years, my lovely bride, the mighty Aphrodite, will be behind the microphone guest hosting this program Sunday, April the 2nd. She's going to be terrific, so make sure you tune in. All right. So we were talking about uh, John Carpenter and uh, all... Everything points to him. We've got the blood stain, the the uh, type B negative uh, on the uh, the passenger side door of his rental car. Bob Crane is B negative. Only nine percent of the population is B negative. So why did John Carpenter walk? Well, the problem was it took sixteen years to bring him to trial. Um, in nineteen seventy eight, the prosecutor at the time here in Arizona in Phoenix did not feel that they had probable cause. I know it sounds crazy, blood in Carpenter's car, but there was no eyewitness. There was no murder weapon. There was no confession, even though they tried like heck to get one out of Carpenter. He never cracked. 
They interviewed him twice. I've listened to both of them. He held his ground. Um, they just didn't feel they had it. Blood in the car, but remember, in, in, a, in a place the size of Phoenix, this could be, oh, I don't know, 60,000, 70,000 people who have type B positive blood. That's an excellent point. So they just felt too circumstantial, not enough there, and that just simply thinking it isn't enough. You've got to have proof. They didn't have it. So two prosecutors passed on it. Then in 1990, they reopened the case. A new county attorney came in, Rick Romley. Rick Romley is a former Marine, lost both of his legs in Vietnam. He's a tough guy. And he said, this case deserves to go to trial, and we're going to put this guy on. We believe he's a killer. We're going to put him on trial. The only thing, Richard, that materially changed from the early days to 1990 was a photograph of a speck of tissue. This had been long overlooked of Bob, uh, well, it was in John Carpenter's car. Along with the blood, there was a speck of tissue. And for the YouTube viewers, we can probably put that speck of tissue up. Looks like a, under a magnifying, uh, under magnification, it looks like a cluster of salmon eggs. Investigators believe that this was brain tissue. And when they found that picture, they said, this is our smoking gun. If, if there's blood in the car and there's brain tissue in John Carpenter's car, he is a guy. How did they miss it? How did they, and how did they miss the photograph? It was sitting in the, in the evidence box the whole time? That's right. They, when they started going back through the photos, they only had six photos when they reopened the case in 1990. And Jim Raines, who was the guy who really spearheaded the investigation, along with Barry Vassell, Scottsdale PD, he said there have got to be more pictures. They finally found the role of 21. Apparently, a police detective overlooked this um, in the early stages and said, well, these six pictures are the best ones of the blood in the car. He didn't really know what that speck was, and he discarded it. When Rain saw it, he said, oh, my God, that is brain tissue. Oh, dear. And they went to pathologists who also said, that is brain tissue. The problem was, Richard, if it was collected, it was lost or misplaced. So the jury had the photograph only not the sample. And the judge at trial said, you can disregard anything that the prosecution can't produce in court. Even though they've got a photo of it, you can disregard it. And that's what they did. They didn't know what it was at trial. Secondarily, when it went to trial in 1994, O.J. Simpson was happening. And on the backdrop of all the discussion of DNA, the, ju the jury wanted DNA to prove not only was there blood in, in John Carpenter's car that matched Bob Crane's blood type, they wanted somebody to say we did dna on it it's not only his blood type it's from bob crane right right it is bob crane's blood they didn't have it everything to that point richard was inconclusive on the dna they tested it four times and they all came back inconclusive and even then in 94 that's right uh, dna evidence was still controversial and in it in, in its infancy Yes. Uh, very new science, and it had gotten a lot better by 2016, and that's where we got involved. And that's where we'll pick it up on the other side. John Hook, Who Killed Bob Crane, the final close-up right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 
800-684-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. All right, late breaking. Uh, just dialing back a few moments ago when we did our reveal on the, uh, our remote viewing experiment, I was just scrolling up on the live chat. And I missed it, uh, but Neo JB seventy four uh, actually wrote yo yo yo. <laughs> so uh, Neo JB seventy four, uh, we'll get in touch uh, via email, and we'll send out some uh, conspiracy show merch. Congratulations! He, it's right there. And someone else said green something green. Someone else said some string. Uh, between the three of them, they, they, they sort of nailed it. But uh, Neo JB74 actually said or wrote in the live chat here, yo, yo, yo. <laughs> so there you go. I thought he was just saying hi, yo, yo, yo. But no. All right. Uh, John Hook uh, stays with us. Who killed Bob Crane? The final close up. All right. So this, um, we should point out, though, the other, one of the other um, uh, motivations for you writing this book was you met uh, Bob Crane Jr. And here's a family that has had no closure for nearly 40 years. Um, and his story to you really touched you. So when you reached out to him and you decided, I'm going to write this book, what was his reaction? Well, I really, it began as a television story, Richard, because I'm an anchor and reporter here at Fox 10 in Phoenix and have been for many, many years. I called Bob after interviewing him in March of 2015. This is two years ago, exactly. And after I interviewed him, I just felt the profound sadness he felt with no resolution as to who killed his father, no solid proof as to who killed his father. I called him. I said, Bob, are you sitting down? And I just met him. I said, I, I want to do something. I want to try something. You need answers, and I want to see if I can get them. I want to see if we can find the evidence in the case. And if we find it, can we retest the DNA and the blood evidence in the case and maybe get an answer? that we could not get in 1994, the last time this stuff was tested. With modern DNA science, could we get an answer? A silence on the phone. I thought I'd offended him. And he said, oh, my God, do you think you could do that? I said, I'm going to try. Had he said, Richard, no, let sleeping dogs lie, right. I would not have done it. I would not have done it. Sure. Did the... Arizona did the Scottsdale Police Department want to let sleeping dogs lie? Because my sense is that this case was starting to become kind of an embarrassment. I think for them, yes. And uh, they, they were not aware of what I was doing because the evidence, as it turned out, was in the custody of the Maricopa County Attorney's Office, not Scottsdale PD. That's the first place I tried. They didn't have it. It was the Maricopa County Attorney's Office that tried John Carpenter. They kept this stuff after trial. It just went into storage. It took them a long time to find it. That's why it's taken so long to get this case out there again. If, if this is lying in a box for 40 years of vials of blood and so forth. Eleven boxes. Eleven boxes. Of but, evidence. But how can, you, how can you ensure, how could the police ensure that in all those 40 years practically, this, 
this evidence wasn't tampered with or it just wasn't corrupted by the elements? It was in an evidence locker, locked up, and all of the evidence, the DNA evidence and the blood, you see a picture of me, your YouTube uh, folks have seen it, of me holding a vial of Bob Crane's blood, taking it his autopsy the day after his murder. That's what we use for comparison purposes. All this stuff is in plastic, and it's sealed, and it was never opened. We photographed all of this, Richard, to establish chain of custody, and it was also photographed when it arrived at Bodie Selmark Forensics in Lorton, Virginia, which did the testing for JonBenet Ramsey, O.J. Simpson, and Bob Crane way back in the 90s. We wanted to make sure that nobody could come back and say, you monkeyed around with the evidence. We did not. And was there any resistance when you approached Maricopa County uh, to have access to the evidence? It was remarkable. They, they were incredibly helpful. The county attorney right now, Bill Montgomery, who I have a long relationship with, Bill said, if you can find something out that we could not prove in a, in a court of law, I'm all for it. His quote to me was, I am not afraid of the truth. And sometimes the truth comes not just in a courtroom, but even through news reporters and investigators looking into a case. He was all for it. He gave us a blessing to do it. Although, I, I should point out, while we were the client, they handled all the evidence, as they would in any other cold case. We did not handle and ship off that evidence. They did it. And why hadn't it occurred to them uh, since the original trial of John Carpenter back in 1994? Why didn't it occur to them to, to go ahead and retest? John Carpenter had died four years after trial, after he was acquitted in 1994. There was no one left in their, in their mind to try. They felt the case was solved in their mind, even though it was technically a cold case, because no one had been convicted of the crime. But in their mind, they put the guy on trial that they believe committed the crime. And short of that, they felt if he can learn something more, maybe prove that John Carpenter was a killer, I mean, if we could have proved in our sample that the DNA in that car came from Bob Crane, case closed. And as I told you earlier when we did our interview about a month ago um, on Coast to Coast AM, the original title of the book was, the working title, Case Closed. I fully believed that the DNA was going to come back, Bob Crane's blood in John Carpenter's car, case closed. That's not what we got. There was a um, oh uh, just before we we talk about the the, the results and uh, the, you sort of built a TV special around this. Um, I want to dial back to John Carpenter because I, I sort of I missed I forgot to ask you about this. After the murder in 1978 and he fled back to L.A. It's interesting. It turns out he was staying with Richard Dawson. Yeah. That's right. What was that all about, and was Dawson ever interviewed? Oh, boy. You know, this was very intriguing to investigators. Dawson and Carpenter were friends. But Carpenter goes home to L.A. and doesn't go back to the apartment that he shares with his girlfriend. He stays with Richard Dawson for two days. And, in fact, when police tracked him down... They called him from Carpenter's apartment and said, we want to talk to you. And Carpenter said, I'm at my mother's house. I'm about 70 miles away. It's going to take me an hour to get there, but I'm glad to talk to you. Not true. He was at Richard Dawson's house. Now, why did he lie? There could be many reasons. One, Dawson may have said, don't tell him. Don't tell him you're with me. I don't want to get involved. 
Who knows? Did Carpenter tell Dawson that weekend what had happened if he was a killer? Police believe he might have, that he might have actually shared it with Dawson. Others say not true. And others say this is all much to do about nothing, that Carpenter was staying with his friend, that he was maybe a little bit distraught that Bob Crane had been killed, and that he was staying with Dawson just to hang out. But, but it gave him a protection, a layer of protection, to be with a celebrity that would keep police a little bit at bay, right? They're going to handle a guy like Dawson with kid gloves. They're not going to come kind of barging in with, you know. They're going to have to be a little deferential. So it gave him a little bit of a buffer. Because Dawson by this time was hosting Family Feud, was he not? I believe that's right. I think he had just started to in 70, let's see. By 78, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that, but Dawson was well-known. Right. Huge star. Certainly he was uh, well-known from Match Game with Gene Rayburn. Yeah, I think he may have been. He may have been on Family Feud at that point. Right, right. Um, And then, of course, uh, Dawson does not uh, attend the funeral. Everyone else was there, I'm guessing, Werner Klemperer and... Everybody was there. Right. Everyone was there. Dawson is not there. It's curious. Yeah. I mean, there there was some tension between the two of them, between right. Crane and Dawson. And maybe Dawson felt it was disingenuous to attend if, he, if they weren't friends. That's right. That's, That's a good... possible, too. So we have to always, before we read too much into this stuff and speculate, there may be very good reasons why he didn't go. All right. So the new DNA testing is um, complete on this speck of blood that was on, found on the passenger side of the, the rental car belonging to John Carpenter. Again, the blood type matched Bob Crane's. It was B negative. Now B we're getting B positive. Apologies. Right. Now we're getting the sort of the definitive DNA test. Yes. But there's something we have to. We're, we've, got, we've got about three and a half minutes here, but it's important to point out something about this DNA test. How it's almost too effective, too good. Explain. Well, what we got by the time we had that sample, when it got to Bodie Selmark, I talked to the techs and they said, you know, what we're looking at here, yes, it's a sample from the car that once had blood on it, but we can't see any visible blood on this sample. So now we're left with DNA tests, and we use something called PowerPlex Fusion. We rolled the dice with one final test. That's why the the book is called The Final Close-Up because this stuff now has been exhausted. There is nothing left to test in the Bob Crane murder. All of these samples have now been exhausted. When they got to it, this had been tested four times already. There's no visible blood on it. So now what we're left with is getting cellular material. And we got something. We got DNA from an unidentified male and a partial profile too degraded to reach any conclusions. The problem is, and you alluded to it, Richard, is that DNA testing is so sensitive now, it is possible that what we picked up on that sample is DNA that has nothing to do with this crime. That is possible. And Bodie said, I pressed them on this, they said, we are not in the the business of telling you what this means, that's up to prosecutors and defense attorneys, but it is equally possible that it was from the blood and that the blood just didn't match, that it's not Bob Crane's blood in there. And it's equally possible that you're getting DNA, stray DNA, uh, outlier DNA from some other source. And this is, is this being revealed live on, on Fox News in Arizona? We did it. We did it in November of 2016. We revealed it live with a panel of all the people connected with this crime. Rick Romley, the prosecutor, 
uh, Barry Vassell, the first investigator on the case, the jury foreman Michael Lake, Bob Crane Jr. was there, and Stephen Avila, John Carpenter's attorney, live from Oakland, California. We had everyone there. And so, again, on live TV, Bob Crane Jr. in attendance, it comes down, the DNA, you cannot definitively identify Bob Crane's blood in the That's rental right. car. That's right. It is not Bob Crane's blood, and it's not from John Carpenter. It is from an unidentified male. And we have since had people look at that DNA result who say now that that secondary sample, the too degraded to reach any conclusions, based on the alleles that are there, they say that is not Bob Crane either. Oh, boy. And yes. so the reaction, uh, you looked over, I'm guessing, immediately to Bob Crane Jr. What's the expression on his face? He gasped. Um, TMZ reported bombshell on live TV. That's how they, that was the headline. Um, not Bob Crane's blood, live bombshell on TV. Bob Crane Jr. was stunned. But as we reviewed it afterwards, you know, a lot of these guys who've, who staked their career on this case, said, you know, I think you're picking up phantom DNA. You're picking up stray DNA that doesn't have anything to do with the crime. That's what they've fallen back on, and I fully understand it, and it's very possible. So We don't know why we got this result, Richard. Uh, I expected it would be Bob Crane case closed. That's not what we got. And how did Bob take it? Did you discuss it with him after? I mean, you must well, have felt horrible. Felt, uh, you know, I did this really, frankly, for him. That's the reason we did it. And again, if he had said, I don't want you going down this road, there, the family's been through too much, I wouldn't have done it. I really would not have done it. He wanted us to do it. He said, if you can learn anything, it's been worth it. And we learned things. We just didn't, we just didn't get quite there with linking Carpenter definitely to the crime. But everyone involved in the case, yourself included, still remains convinced it was John Carpenter. Well, you know, I, I believe so, but I will tell you, Richard, this finding does cast reasonable doubt. And I believe if prosecutors had this result in 1994, they wouldn't have dared put John Carpenter on trial. So the case remains open? You know, if a murder weapon surfaces, if that tripod surfaces, somebody comes forward with it, and it's Bob Crane's blood on the tripod, Maybe then, with John Carpenter's prints on it, maybe then we'll have an answer. John Hook. I think we, we are still not there. John Hook, thank you so much for this. Richard, thank you. WhoKilledBobCrane.com, the website, WhoKilledBobCrane.com, and John Hook. All right, back on the other side with another grisly murder. Above suspicion, the true story of serial killer Russell Williams. Stay with us. Follow the truth. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. A big hello to all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, right here in the Liberty Village of Toronto, Canada. Those of you, of course, catching us on one of our affiliate stations, 
Uh, the podcast, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn.com, iTunes, TalkZone.com. Uh, those of you who take the program with you wherever you go on your mobile device, using the Zoomer Radio app and the Conspiracy Show app, both terrific apps and both absolutely free downloads. Uh, those of you catching us on the live, uh, live YouTube stream, and uh, hello uh, again to all of you in the, uh, the live chat right now. Oh, please take a moment and uh, on the YouTube channel, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett, please hit the subscribe button. We've set a very modest goal of 10,000 subs sometime in 2017, and only you can help us get there. So again, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett, the YouTube channel, and click on subscribe. And if you like what you hear, please hit the like button and uh, leave some comments. Uh, however, and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. Alan R. Warren is standing by with a true crime that shocked this nation. I'm speaking of Canada, where this program originates. And Alan is here to describe the secret life of serial killer Russell Williams, who was um, a pillar of the community, uh, uh, an elite pilot of Canada's Air Force One. And uh, we'll get into this heinous crime, the abductions, the rapes, the murders that were unleashed on an unsuspecting community. Uh, next week on the program, Morgan Reynolds, former chief economist with the Department of Labor during President George W. Bush's administration and uh, the founder of NoMoreGames.net, uh, will be here in the first hour to talk about the deep state, the shadow government. And in the second hour, our paranormal investigator, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Uh, incidentally, uh, Sunday, April the 2nd, uh, you've heard me speak over the years of the mighty Aphrodite, my lovely bride, these last 17 years. And I mention her, of course, every week when I sign off. Uh, she's going to be behind the microphone, guest hosting this program, Sunday, April the 2nd. Mark it down. Uh, I'm taking the night off and taking the boys to see the zombies uh, in concert here in Toronto. And... Um, Again, the mighty Aphrodite will be in the air chair hosting the show, and this is going to be great fun. And I know she is going to, uh, to be terrific. So I hope you'll all tune in and support her. Al Warren is a, a true crime author for R.J. Parker Publishing, as well as a contributing writer for the True Crime Case Files magazine with his master's degree in music, minor in criminology from UW, and recording and edit sound engineering uh, Juno Award-winning Bullfrog Studios in Vancouver. Above Suspicion, the true story of serial killer Russell Williams is the book. And, uh, Alan, we are uh, pleased to have you on The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Oh, good. Thank you very much. This is a, this is a story, a true crime uh, story, that really touched a nerve in this country. I mean, all, obviously, serial killers, uh, all murder is, is heinous. Uh, but because of... Russell Williams' background, as we mentioned, an elite pilot, flew VIPs, including the Queen, Prince Philip, the Governor General, the Prime Minister. Um, I mean, this guy really had a double life. How, did, how was he able to fool so, so many people for so long? Was he just a complete sociopath? I mean, he must have presented very well. Uh, he presented uh, excellent. Um, I, there was even times when... Uh, he, um, when he committed the second murder, um, what he had done is when he had um, kidnapped the girl, basically, taken it back to his house, uh, tied her up, beat her, and raped her for eight hours, then left her and went to work. 
And w- so within an hour, he had a meeting with um, the uh, security, um, just another interview. And uh, even talking to the security officer um, said there was just no sign. He wasn't uh, upset. He wasn't tired. He wasn't stressed. He was very perfectly calm. All right. Well, that kind of gives us some insight into to him, and we'll come back around, obviously, to these heinous crimes. But let's go back to the beginning. Uh, he was born in England, but was there anything in his upbringing, in his childhood, uh, that would uh, hint at you know the development of this this monster? Well, that's a tough one. You know, um, when they came to Canada, um, he was six years old. His younger brother um, was four at the time. Um, but his parents um, were involved in a swing club. So the club, basically all the parents would get together, put all the kids in one house with a babysitter, and they would all swing with each other. And eventually what happened, uh, within a year, um, his dad left his mother for one of the other ladies he was swinging with. <laughs> so I, I'm not sure if that's really enough, but in the 60s, that was still pretty controversial. Sure. And, and in fact, what had happened was the, the um, mother took the two boys and left because it was, there was too much talk. It was just a small community, all military people, and um, it was just too much pressure. And, you know, it, it just wasn't allowed in the 60s. That was just unusual. Uh, family emigrated to Chalk River, uh, as you write in the book, and his father yeah. was a metallurgist at a nuclear yeah. research facility. I mean, this, these, were, these were very accomplished people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There, you know, the family was good. Uh, there was enough uh, money to live well. Um, uh, they, were, they were brought up quite... Um, conventional, as in, you know, uh, going to school, and and uh, there did both of the brothers did very well in school. Um, they were they were also well behaved. There was no issues with them. They not like they got into fights. They didn't have uh, any issues. Whether it was the swinging parents or not that kind of threw him into this, it's really hard to say. Uh, he attended um, uh, high school here in town at uh, uh, Birchmount Park Collegiate in Toronto. Uh, delivered the Globe and Mail, you know, took piano lessons. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he belonged to the school band. He, uh, uh, you know, uh, he was a typical kid. Um, uh, and this is kind of a strange thing that happened. Um, when the mother left the father, who had uh, hooked up with another mother, um, eventually that his father and this other lady moved to New York leaving the mother. The mother ended up hooking up and marrying this lady's husband, ex-husband. Mm. So they switched partners. That is bizarre. But again, yeah. I mean, <laughs> certainly nothing, you know, on the surface you would think that would, uh, uh, you know, lead one, you know, to, to become such a, a heinous killer. Uh, oh, although, is it is it possible that... In his eyes, women became somewhat dehumanized because of these relationships? Well, you know, that was um, kind of... I, I talked to two different um, psychiatrists, a couple of uh, people that were involved, and um, there was talk that his father used to beat his mother, and he used to see that. 
and his father used to like to wear woman's clothing. So uh, in his eyes, at a young age, he was watching his father um, push around his mother and wear woman's clothing. You know, it's got to have a big impact. And then all of a sudden, within a year of them being in Canada, the parents just switch partners and move. Alan R. Warren is my guest, the author of Above Suspicion, the true story of serial killer Russell Williams, still obviously very fresh in the minds of um, our listeners here. Uh, talk about his time at uh, Upper Canada College here in Toronto. He was, um, he was a bit of a prankster, by all accounts. Yeah, yeah. And actually talking to his best friend at the time, who actually still considers himself his best friend, um, um, they sort of had a, um, um, uh, a dorm, and he would used to he used to do things like he put plastic over wrap over the toilet and uh, um, put things in people's drinks, uh, jump out of closets and, and scare people. Um, he was quite a quite a jokester, um, and for the most part, people liked him. Uh, he was also very organized. Uh, he um, run the dorm told everybody when they had to cook, when they had to do groceries, whose turn it was to do everything. He was very much an in-charge person, very organized, very polite, but at the same time, yeah, he was a prankster and used to make fun, have, have a lot of fun things. And this is in the, uh, the mid to late 80s, and around this time, of course, uh, his uh, case kind of starts to dovetail a little bit with another notorious heinous monster, um, namely Paul Bernardo. And the, we had the Scarborough Rapist running around in in the East End um, starting in around 1987. What's the connection there? Well, the connection is that they, <laughs> this is the really another bizarre thing. They were both in the same class, economics class, the same time all of this was going on. So and, and now there's been reports, and a lot of the uh, Toronto and Montreal papers um, claimed that they were friends. Now, Jean Tricur, who was Russell Williams' best friend, said he denies that. He said that other than being in the same class and maybe going and having a beer, beer or two with the group, they were not friends. Um, so that I can't really say for sure one way or the other. But what a bizarre coincidence. And at, at one point, um, does Williams decide, I mean, he's studying economics for four years. And then all of a sudden, he, you know, he, wake, he wakes up and he decides, no, I'm going to join the Air Force. When did that happen? How did that happen? Well, you know, according to his best friend, who's kind of the best resource we have, um, it just came out of the blue. Um, just as you're saying, he's taking courses. He's totally in one direction. He just came back to the dorm one day and said to his friend, I'm going to be a pilot. And his friend, you know, John said, oh, that's, that's a joke, and just kind of laughed it off. And he kind of thought he was getting caught up in the Tom Cruise thing and the Top Gun and that whole sort of scenario right. and kind of laughed it off. But no, Williams switched and went right into the military and became a pilot. And as we shall see when we come back, uh, he was not only fighting fighter jets, but transport planes to war zones, natural disasters, carrying the Prime Minister, the Queen of England, across the country and around the world. Alan R. Warren stays with us. The true story of serial killer Russell Williams, 
above suspicion when the conspiracy show returns right after this. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Uh, welcome back. Just a programming correction. I, um, I made an error. Go figure. That's my second one this year. <laughs> Uh, I mentioned, uh, coming up on the program next week, I, I mentioned Morgan Reynolds. Correction, Morgan Reynolds will be on the program on April the 9th, Sunday, April 9th. Uh, next week on the program, um, Freddie Silva, who writes a lot about uh, sacred sites and crop circles. Um, uh, and um, I think we're going to be talking about um, his book, The Lost Art of Resurrection. So Freddie Silva. Uh, will be with us on the program uh, next week. And uh, who else, Albert, next week? It's open lines. Open lines in the second uh, second hour. Excellent. Okay, back to our conversation with Alan R. Warren, the true story of serial killer Russell Williams. Now, when you get into the, when you get into the armed forces, and if you want to be a, f- a pilot, um, particularly if you're going to be in close proximity uh, to VIPs like the Queen and Prince Philip and the governor general and the prime minister, don't you have to be put through like a Briggs-Meyer test or something like that? Uh, Yeah, actually, you go through several tests. Um, He had to be tested on all sorts of levels, and um, he scored very well. And even talking to his superior officer at the time who promoted him into the position he eventually had, um, he still doesn't know how he, he made it through. Um, And that's questionable. Again, when I, when I talk to, um, people in the business of doing the tests, a lot of the tests were created out of prisoners, people that had been incarcerated for crimes. So uh, they sort of say it's at a lower level. It should, it should be much better than it is. And uh, also talking to RCMP officers that deal with the same type of tests, they said um, they're not that hard to pass. In other words, you can – and the Briggs-Myers test is um, – which was also developed by, by um, Carl Jung, was it not? Um, right. If – it's a personality test. So if you're, if you're a, a, a complete sociopath or a, a psychopath, you would think something like that test would pick it up. But you're saying well, there was it, no hint. It, no, because you see the problem is the sociopath and psychopath tend not to have feelings. They learn to mimic behavior of people with feelings when they're very young. And so they don't really feel it. And these, the, the tests in general are meant to catch that, you know, by asking about cruelty to animals and different subtle ways of trying to see if you have any empathy for something that's suffering. And that's where the, that's where the problem lies is because when they learn, such as Russell, to mimic at such a young age... Um, they can get through these tests without being spotted. Uh, I want to uh, 
I want to talk about his uh, his marriage uh, to Mary Elizabeth Harriman, and right. we didn't hear much about her uh, after after the arrest. Um, we still don't hear much about her. But I'm just taking a bit of a a bit of a kind of blue skying it here. But the name Harriman is would, is 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 well known to listeners of, of this program as in Averill Harriman. As in, I believe he was a governor of New York at one time. Uh, I believe he was ambassador to uh, the Soviet, former Soviet Union, Averill Harriman. Uh, I'm told that um, there is a rumor that during um, Stalin's alleged psychological breakdown in 1941, that Harriman was actually running the Soviet Union. That may be apocryphal. But I'm just wondering, again, a bit of a, a blue sky here, but... Did you look into Mary Elizabeth Harriman's lineage? I mean, is she related to the to the Harrimans? Um, no, um, no. Uh, they're out of um, England as well, um, part of the BP Empire, and um, not much more. Not much more is known. Uh, they weren't extremely wealthy. They were um, a middle to upper middle class family. Um, father was a rep, um, a, a fairly decent upbringing, as far as we can tell. All right. And, um, I mean, did she have any any clue? Or did she have at any point? I mean, was this a, a complete well, surprise to her as well? Well, of the day. Yeah. Um, you know, because what happened was uh, her reactions were not of one that would be surprised. Hmm. Um, that at the time when he was caught, for instance, and he admitted it, um, the police sent a search party, you know, and uh, and uh, they had a warrant. So they come to the house, knock on the door, and they say to the wife, "Well, your husband's been arrested and and confessed to the murders, and we have a search warrant." And so she got her stuff and left. They performed the search and came back the next day. What's the first thing she does? She calls the lawyer, and she sues the police department for scratching her hardwood floors. Oh my! Like, if if you you know if you're at home and all of a sudden the police come to the door and say they've got your spouse arrested and confessed to murders, and we're going to search your house, I, I I don't see that being my first reaction. Don't scratch my floors. Quite a pair. Like, hmm. like that's strange. The other thing is. All of the things that he collected, all of the um, woman's clothing, all the pictures, the films, which we can talk about in, his, uh, in the crimes, were all in duffel bags all throughout the house and throughout the cabin. There was blood as well. The police found he uh, shared a Mac laptop with his wife. And on that, he had thousands of pictures of um, the girls that he assaulted, of him wearing all the clothes, all of that, all on the desktop, and all filed by name and who the, who it was. Hmm. So, I, you know, hard to believe <laughs> she wouldn't have known everything. Yeah. Hard to believe. And and not only that, the thing is, if you're doing all this stuff, um, I would think that you'd be worried. If your wife didn't know, wouldn't you hide them? Wouldn't you? Be, why would you just leave everything all over the place? Cause Precisely. If she didn't know, wouldn't you be worried that she'd come home and find it? Um, I want to go back then to his um, his career trajectory, which, I mean, walk us through how he 
ends up becoming this VIP pilot to, as we mentioned, the Queen, the Queen, uh, Prince Philip, the, the Prime Minister, the Governor General. How did that happen? It, I mean, it seemed to happen fairly quickly. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, he, he um, went in to be a pilot. He uh, uh, went through all the training. Became, he, was, he was considered a very good pilot. He was so structured. Uh, the military loved him. He was um, so dedicated, so precise at everything he did. And he transferred. By 2004, he already had his Master's of Defense and had written a thesis uh, to get a doctorate. He was, he was 100% dedicated, and he spent all of his time. Uh, when he wanted something, he, he did it, and he would take anything that he could to, to make that happen. It, a bit of a hawk by all accounts because his, his thesis uh, was arguing for a preemptive war in Iraq. Exactly, yes. Yes, he was, he was totally involved in that. He, he was... Um, so he was like i said he was so he was just totally engulfed with the whole idea and and going to war and and um it, it was just who he was and he was 100% into it there was no, nothing else in his life that mattered uh, so at what point and what year does he start flying um the queen and and the governor general and the prime minister around well he started doing that just in the last oh, uh 3 4 years um, when he was at Trenton Air Force Base, he wasn't the commander at the time, um, but he had passed all the security clearance and he moved, moved himself up. He was involved in a secret operation for the military uh, in the Mideast, and he came back successful. Um, and um, they were looking, they needed a new leader, and he was one of a few that stuck out. And why they liked him is because he presented so well as, uh, you know, to the, to the public. Uh, anytime he had gone on events or done things, he had a really, really good record. Uh, let's move ahead to 2007. And uh, uh, Williams and his wife moved to uh, the community Tweed, Ontario. They buy a little cottage on yeah. Cozy Cove Lane, such an idyllic <laughs> uh, setting. Uh, and, and, and then in 2007, we start to hear reports of sort of a series of bizarre break-ins. What's going on? Well, you know, um, what, what had happened was at first they bought a house in Orleans, you know, just a suburb in Ottawa. And his wife was the, you know, executive, account executive for the Heart and Stroke Foundation Canada. So they needed to be there. And when he got um, into Trenton Air Force Base... And then he started doing his work. They decided to, to buy the Tweed Ontario Cottage so that he wouldn't have to drive back and forth all the time. And in, in around Tweed, all of a sudden, um, people were having their house broke into, but nothing seemed to be stolen. And eventually, um, it started to be um, woman's clothing, started being uh, woman's panties. Like uh, his next door neighbor, for instance, uh, would go away the weekend, and uh, when they come back, you know, their 12-year-old daughter would come back down the stairs to the parents and say, "Hey, listen, my my underwear drawer is empty," and uh, the typical reaction of them was like, "Did you check the floor or the laundry bin or something?" <laughs> you know, a teenager, and um, eventually this started happening all over the neighborhood. 
and that it was done very well because a lot of people didn't believe it. At the time, only about 15% of them re- were reported. And, and these bizarre break-ins in, in Tweed were mirroring similar break-ins that were taking place back in Orleans where Williams and his wife were originally. Exactly. It, it, it actually, they were, they were identical, and in both, both towns. And um, they became more, um, just more often in the Tweed area. And they started happening less in the Orleans area um, as he got the cabin and, and was spending more time there. Um, of course, the police didn't associate that. And the other problem was the police didn't even tell people. Um, it's not like they put a warning out, oh, by the way, this is what's going on. Be on the lookout for a panty prowler. Um, so people weren't aware of all this going on at the time, and some reported it and some wouldn't. It starts to escalate. I mean, first there are the break-ins, and then then he starts to videotape and photograph himself wearing these articles of, of women's clothing. Uh, in particular, there's the next-door neighbors, the Murdochs. Tell me about that. Yeah, the, the Murdochs were um, very close friends and um, trusted him. He had the key to the house. They had a 12-year-old daughter, and she would bake uh, muffins for him. He would uh, give her piggyback rides. Uh, very close families. And um, now the Murdoch's mother, stepmother in there, was um, sick. So they would go away for the weekend and spend time with her. And so he would come into the house and he would uh, take off his clothes, lay on the 12-year-old's bed, and he would uh, put put on all of her different undergarments and masturbate. Oh, dear. And, and he had a tripod set up at the end of the bed. So he would film the whole thing as well as he had a little still camera that he would take pictures of himself throughout. And he did that both nights they were away on the weekend. And then they'd come back. And he'd go over and say, oh, everything's great, and how, how was their trip, and they didn't have a clue. And then when, again, it happened when uh, the stepmother finally died and they had to go up to the funeral, he did the exact same thing. But what he started doing was collecting the clothes as well. And he started collecting pieces of, um, like, um, shoes and dresses and uh, nighties. And he even went into the mother's room and, and, and took her vibrator. It's almost as if uh, he's, he's upping the risk because he's, he's excited by the risks he's taking. And, and that's propelling him to, to go further, to do more. He starts leaving messages now uh, for, right. for, these, uh, for these girls. What's, tell me about that. Well, well, you know, he would, like, for instance, with the vibrator, he would, uh, um, with one of them, he would take a picture of his penis laying across the vi- vibrator, and he would put it onto her computer. And um, in another case, he also would say, leave little notes, like, um, oh, yeah, tell the police, I'd love to show them what, what, what you had. And, you know, he's taken about a vibrator or something. And... Um, it kind of was a little bit scary um, at that time. It started turning uh, into a little bit more than just photos and taking pictures. And then he would also go into the rooms and uh, go through their pictures and take pictures out of their book, like their photo book, and leave it on the bed open so they would know it. And, and meanwhile, 
back in Trenton, Russell Williams uh, is in charge of thousands of military women and, and men and women. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, as he got promoted throughout, the um, break-ins increased and the risk. Like, he started getting more and more um, aggressive and more more into people and letting them know that he'd been into their possessions. And then even to the very first attack was when he came home from Alaska on a trip. He was just promoted as the wing commander. That was his very first attack that we know about. Uh, that was Corporal Marie-France Como. Actually, that was the first killing. That was the first murder, first, right. first attack was the Lori Malakoff. Uh, and what uh, I, I don't want to get uh, uh, too too graphic um, as we describe some of these heinous crimes. Um, yeah. but, but the attack on the first girl. What were the circumstances? Well, basically, he would go into the into the basement of the of the woman's house, like he did with Flory, and he would hide um, and wait. When they came home, he would attack them in some way, um, wearing a, a mask so that they wouldn't see his face. He would blindfold them, tie them up. And then he would assault them. And with Laurie, he assaulted her about eight, nine hours. Now, he didn't rape her. Uh, There was no sexual contact in that way. But he would wear their clothes and beat them and just have them tied up and and film it. And it was kind of a weird event because he wasn't raping them. Now, it, it led up to that with the next couple, but the very first two, he didn't. All right, we will uh, take a time out. Uh, this is Grizzly Stuff, um, and uh, we will try and avoid some of the more graphic details. Alan R. Warren is with us. The book is Above Suspicion, the true story of serial killer Russell Williams. Back with more on the other side. The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Loose lips sink ships, and sometimes corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740. Or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Above Suspicion, the true story of serial killer Russell Williams, Alan R. Warren, is uh, with us. And uh, this is uh, part of the Crimes Canada True Crime series. True Crimes that Shocked the Nation. This is uh, Volume 16. Um, Before Williams actually kills his first victim uh, and these uh, I mean was he ever interviewed by police was he ever approached um, in connection to either the break-ins or this first attack no no not at all not at all actually even the second attack um, actually even the third it wasn't until the fourth attack that they um, brought well he became on the list and that was only by accident because they had set up a roadblock um, in the area where they had, you know, they had a witness about a truck being parked not too far from this woman's house. 
And so they were just doing a, a you know, stop and, and look, and they were looking for a certain tire, certain truck, certain vehicle. And he happened to have that same vehicle. So they spoke to him just like everybody else, took his name, license, and he became on that list. But it, it, it was completely by accident. Uh, again, I don't want to get into the, the, the graphic details, but his first victim, uh, murder victim, uh, Corporal Como, um, how, how, did, um, how did he uh, first meet her, and um, when did this heinous crime take place? Well, he met her because um, they were on a flight together. Um, she had worked at the same Air Force base, and she was a the same sort of thing. She, she, she had the same job. She would fly dignitaries, um, and she had just done a big world trip and uh, come back, and she was a co-pilot with him on one of the trips. That's how they met. Um, other than that, we don't think they had much of a relationship. But he had um, waited outside of her house, just like he did with the other victims. He would wait till they're gone. He would break in. He would go through the bedroom and the bathroom to make sure there was no man living there. It's really important. And then when he decided to do his deed, again, he would do the same break-in, wait in the basement, and uh, when they came home, went to bed, and then he would uh, do his attack. Um, she didn't report for work, and um, she was discovered, I, I guess, inside her house by her boyfriend. Exactly. And that was the uh, next day, actually. Yeah. Uh, and... Of course, uh, not going into the details, but she was sexually, she was raped, and the, the entire heinous affair was, was recorded on videotape. Right. Now, you know, what made it also more heinous is because he would, he would tie them up to the bed, for instance, and for instance with, with the corporal, and he would film the whole thing. Then when he killed them, he would stop and take pictures of them Bleeding out on oh, the um, on the floor. Uh, his second victim, Jessica Lloyd. Uh, similar yeah. circumstances, same mo. Exactly the same. Now on this one, he almost got caught. Um, he was waiting. She had an empty field beside her house, and he parked his truck there, and he waited, and then he broke into the basement and uh, waited for her to come home. And um, while this happened, um, a police car drove by and saw the vehicle. And she went to the front door of Jessica Lloyd and knocked on it. Got no answer, so left. And then Jessica Lloyd came home maybe 10 minutes after, and then he killed her. It was, it was that close. And uh, this is in Belleville, correct? Yes. And Belleville police were notified 24 hours, within 24 hours, and um, they conducted ground and aerial searches. Yeah. How was she discovered? Well, you see, and that's, that's what this shows up. She, she wasn't discovered immediately. And what he had done was he went to his other neighbor, Larry Jones, uh, who was a retired grandfather, and um, asked Larry Jones about his hunting and uh, what he liked to hunt and where, he, where his camp would be when he hunted. And uh, what he did was he took her body and dumped it near the camp where Larry Jones was hunting. 
And while Larry Jones was out hunting, he had broken into Larry Jones' house, took an old jacket and gloves of his to leave it with the body. So the police suspected Larry Jones, searched the house, even arrested him and his wife, took him in for questioning. The whole neighborhood was looking at the neighbor. It took it took any suspicion off anybody else. Um, they uh, the police, however, received uh, tips from some motorists, which ultimately right. led to an interview with Russell Williams. Uh, we're, we're coming right. up on a break here, but um, just describe how that uh, how that happened, how that fell out, and uh, well, we, we'll continue on the other side after the break. But let's start it now. Yeah, sure. No, they they what they done was when they were canvassing the area, they had not only the police officer, but the two other motorists that happened to see that same truck. And they went onto the empty field, and they, the prints of the truck tires were really clear. So they took matches of those, and that's when they set up the roadblock. He happened to be driving that same truck that he had drove to her place to kill her, and his tires were the same. And he had the same type of truck. So they put him on the list and, and called him in. For, first, they watched him for a while, along with the other people on that same list, and then called him in for questioning. How did that interview go? Oh, let, let me uh, jump in here. Uh, we will pick that up on the other side. The, uh, the interview with police and Russell Williams, the true story of serial killer Russell Williams by Alan R. Warren. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show after this timeout. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. All right, uh, welcome back. Alan R. Warren stays with us. Above suspicion, the true story of serial killer Russell Williams. This exchange uh, during the interrogation uh, with Williams and the, um, the investigator is, is quite remarkable. Just take a few moments and, and walk us through that back and forth leading up to Williams' confession. Yeah, it was. It was uh, overall, it was 10 hours. Um, and they called him at his home and asked him to come in um, for questioning and why he did without a lawyer and by himself, um, we're not sure. Maybe he was just believed in his own mental capacity at the time. Um, and Staff Sergeant Jim Smith was the one who did the interrogation. And um, when he first walked in, uh, he was very confident, you know, he had chewing gum, throw his jacket on the counter, and... Um, his gloves, and he was just, um, you know, just, and he was very, you know, sharp, you know, and the detective would say something, he'd go, yeah, check, no problem, and um, really came on strong, and uh, and even the detective asked him, you know, have you ever been in a questioning before, have you ever been through any sort of interviews with police, and, you know, and he grinned, and he would say, well, you know, of course, uh, I was interviewed with the NIS, 
you know, National Investi- Investigation Service and had top clearance, right? So he was very, you know, smug. Uh, and then he was asked really, if he'd ever been had his red his rights read, and then he said no, yeah. and then he read him his rights. <laughs> exactly. Uh, it was just sort of, but he he obviously didn't think they had the goods or something. I, I, I'm not sure why he was so confident. And, and of course, it fell apart rather quickly. Um, it didn't take long before um, he realized, uh, because they had the tire print. And, and the, this is the other thing, too. The, the shoes that he wore to her house, the, the last victim, when he uh, pulled into the field, and it was still kind of snowy and winterish, he walked over to the house, of course, and broke in and did his thing. And he also took her back to his place. And that's where he killed her, back in his own tweed cottage. But they had the footprints of both him and her, Jessica Lloyd, and the tire. And they had that. He was wearing the exact same shoes that he had did all this in when he came to the police for the uh, interrogation, uh, he he was even uh, when when Smith asked him, "Are you able Are you able to help us along with this investigation?" Would you and and uh, William said, "Sure." What do you need? And he said, "Would you give us you know blood samples, fingerprints?" And he was totally cooperative. Yeah, totally, totally. No, I, and he had to know, um, even with the the corporal when he was attacking her in her basement, she fought back. Um, he got cut and left blood all over the place. Um, he had to know, being um, in the military and being so sharp, you know, he wasn't a stupid person. He had to know that, that, that he's leaving his blood, he's, uh, how he could be so confident. I, I, still don't, I still don't get it. And then he drops the bombshell, as Smith does, on Williams, and he says, we, we have the, the tire tracks, we have the foot impression, and it's a match. Right, right. And that was it. And, and you know, the first thing Williams was worried about was his wife and what's going to happen to her and their house. And if he could guarantee that um, she didn't get any sort of nothing bad was going to happen to her, um, he could he could help her. And uh, so eventually after being asked for a little while longer, um, where's the body of Jessica? He just said, well, he got a map hmm. and pointed it out. It was that simple. What comes next is is kind of strange. I've never read something like this before. And, and um, Smith asks Williams to do something uh, very unusual. He asks him to write letters of apology to his victims. Yeah. Why did he do yeah, that? that? I had never heard of that before until talking to Smith. What he, a part of his investigation and what he did as a habit was when he got a confession, in order to confirm that confession in case it gets thrown out in court or some technicality, is he would come back and say, well, I think you should do the right thing, you know, and, and write write a letter of apology to the family, to the wife, to the whoever, about who you assaulted and killed. And he had to ask him a few times and leave him for 20 minutes, come back, ask him again. And then eventually he did. He wrote letters to all of the, the victims' families. And they, these are reprinted in the, in the book. Um, anything, anything jump out at you in, the, in these letters? Well, I think the, the biggest thing is... 
um, with the first assault victim, who's still unnamed, um, he, he his first letter to her was, um, sorry, I know you'll turn out and grow up to be something great in your life. And at first, you just sort of, it just passes by because of all the other letters. But when you find out later that he takes the, like a plea, like the Crown decides to not charge him with anything to do with pedophilia, and he would say he's guilty to the two murders, two assaults, and the 80-plus break-ins. And as long as they kept it out and didn't mention it. And now, now why they did this, we don't know. It seems to be that they did it to protect the military, the military image. Ah, interesting. Okay. What was yeah. what was the reaction um, from the uh, na- the, minist- the Ministry of Defense? Uh, was there any reaction from the the PMO after Williams was named as the uh, the accused? Well, they took it. Um, they tried to speed it up. They replaced him almost immediately. They tried to um, not talk about this. And they also did things like, uh, well, of course, they melted his, uh, all of his different uh, medals. They burned his uniform, and they took his name off and, you know, of course, took away his rank. And it was almost like he didn't exist. And that was really the, the most noticeable. And the other is the way they kept the pedophilia out of it. He had over 45 garments from young girls. Um, the first one looks like she was underage, uh, you know, um, so theirs was to kind of cover it up right away and try to move on without it happening. And, um, going back to the letters that he wrote, these letters of apology, and, and when you look at them, I mean, they're, they're basically form letters. They're, they all sort of begin and end the same way. I know, you know, to Roxanne Lloyd, mother of murder victim Jessica Lloyd, Mrs. Lloyd, you won't believe me, I know, but I'm sorry for having taken your daughter from you. Jessica was a beautiful, gentle young woman. Uh, I mean, he's, he, he writes the same thing over and over again. But the, the one that he wrote to, uh, to Mrs. Lloyd, um, he wrote something like four or five different drafts. Right. That one, for yeah. some reason, was a little more difficult for him, I, I guess. Not that I care, but um, uh, that it was difficult. But I, I'm just wondering why that one in particular. You know, that one, that's a hard one to say um, because he spent the most time with her. This is the girl that he uh, uh, attacked and assaulted for eight hours in her house and then dragged her to his house made, made her, and then made her shower with him, tied her up and left her there. Mm-hmm. And even took off to work, came back, and did more. So he spent a lot of time with her. And uh, she's also the one that uh, tried to get away from him. She pretended she was having a seizure. And then he untied her and uh, tried to, uh, you know, make her better. You know, that's the only thing I can think of is he spent a long time and uh, kept her around. I have no idea why he had a strong connection with her because they didn't know each other. Um, what about the um, the the unsolved uh, murders, the unsolved rapes? Uh, were they ever tied to Williams? Yeah, that, well, see, that's the biggest problem, right? Um, 
there's no there's no conviction or anything but there's and also Paul Bernardo who you mentioned and his lawyers um come forward in the last year all through 2016 and he kept on blaming a lot of girls that were raped and attacked on Williams um it's become kind of a an open ground because they both did much the same thing blindfolding uh, beating raping and leaving uh you, you, who can tell? And they're they're both in the same university, both in the same area. Who did what? What became of um, his wife, Harriman? Well, yeah, that's the thing. She she just um, after suing the police for to fix her floors, which they did, she disappeared. She left her job and um, just left. And um, now. Just in 2016, she settled the lawsuits, which took a number of years because she was fighting under the spouse, the, the you-can't-claw-back type thing. So um, they had sued uh, Russell Williams and her, and it took a long time for the court to say she could be held accountable. And so she had a lawsuit of $7 million and another one of $2.45 million. And she settled them both out of court in November of last year. And we don't know the total sum that she settled for. And she's never done an interview. And she's been in hiding ever since. We don't know even if she's in the country. No idea. No idea at all. Um, She just left. She wasn't there for the uh, trial part, the conviction, any of that. She never showed up. She never, she just disappeared. She took her things and left. They, um, They sold that house, as well as the cabin. Now, that's another twist. So the cabin in Tweed, he had sold to the Murdochs, the next-door neighbors. Right. <laughs> and they, why would they buy <laughs> the cabin next to them where he actually killed one of the victims? Right, right. It just, you know, plus they, they you know... He, this was uh, sold after what, the fact. They sold... He, yeah, my exactly. Word. Um, now, they did one exclusive interview with McLean's magazine, and that's the only one they would do. And in that, they said that they just didn't want it to turn into a, a touristy place. So that's why they bought it. Oh, that's well, <laughs> all not sure. we that's <laughs> interesting. <laughs> I suppose that's possible. Um, I, it's, a, it's a grisly story. It's, it's one, you know, it's, we don't talk a lot about it. Um, and maybe part of it is because here was a guy that was considered a pillar of the community and um, was so close to the prime minister and, and, and the queen. I mean, he was flying them around the country uh, while at the same time these horrible, grisly things were going on. And um, it's, it's a most disturbing story. And, uh, Alan, I thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Alan R. Warren. Above Suspicion, the true story of serial killer Russell Williams. That's a tough one, a tough one to talk about. Um, But we have to remember the victims and the victims' families. Uh, My thanks to Ian Robertson, Albert Finzel, Ryan White, all of you for listening at home. Back next week with a brand-new program. Freddie Silva will be here, open lines in the second hour. Don't forget to hit that like button on the YouTube channel, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say 
in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.